Hello, friends and foes, and welcome to the latest edition of the Conspiraporn Podcast, brought to you by www.conspiraporn.com. My name is Mad, and you are listening to the ninth episode, number nine, number nine, number nine of this little podcast. And hopefully we're going to have some fun today on today's episode as I'm going to be attempting to cover the long history of horror and the supernatural going back many thousands of years to the dawn of human civilization and the origins of folklore and storytelling. Uh, we'll also be discussing tons of horror movies as well as horror in literature, uh, but I'm going to attempt to tackle things sequentially. Uh, so we have to start at the beginning, and that is with the birth of folklore and mythology. Uh, now, it's not going to be possible for me to cover everything I want to cover in one single episode. Uh, so this is probably going to be broken up into two separate episodes. And likewise there's, uh, likewise, there's no way I could truly cover the long history of horror and the supernatural in folklore and mythology and leading up to the era of the 19th through 21st century. Uh, so don't expect this to be a definitive account of information and key events. Uh, but more so, I just wanted to uh, cover a few things that I wanted to talk about in relation to this topic today. Uh, once again, this podcast has no theme or format. Uh, might be 20 minutes, it might be an hour. I'm going to talk about whatever I want to talk about each week. So thank you for listening today uh, to the Conspiraporn Podcast. Uh, there'll surely be a lot that's left out of the discussion today. Uh, so if you listen into today's episode and feel I've neglected anything, please feel free to leave me some comments either at conspiraporn.com or if you have me on Facebook and Instagram, uh, you can hit reach me there. Or you can email me at mad, uh, the number's 247 at weirdness.com, and I'd love to hear your feedback. And that goes for every single episode of this podcast. Feedback is always appreciated. And thanks to the handful of people out there who are tuning in every week or two and listening to this podcast. Uh, for those of you who might recently watch the popular documentary film series Journey Into Darkness Part 1 and 2, uh, they're both available on the streaming channel Shudder. Uh, then you know that they spent roughly five or six hours just discussing the topic of horror movies from the 1980s. And there are a dozen other documentaries and television shows related to the history of horror. Uh, but I'm going to cram as much into the next hour or two, or possibly three, of the Conspiraporn podcast as I can. And again, this is no way will be a complete rundown of information. It's merely meant to highlight some of my own thoughts as well as to highlight some of my own favorite horror films and books and television series and the idea of horror that goes back 10,000 plus years through folklore, mythology, and religion. Uh, so with that being said, there is a lot to cover on today's episode, and I'm not sure I can even give this topic proper justice, and I feel that my articulation and connecting the dots is inadequate in pretty much every episode of this podcast, but let's get down to it, shall we? Now, to delve into the idea of horror in regards to human perception and the idea that elements of horror in reality as well as in the imagination have been with us since before the birth of human civilization, I'd like to start with a quote by writer and director Wes Craven, uh, considered a master of modern horror, in which he once stated, quote, I think the experience of going to a theater and seeing a movie with a lot of people is still part of the transformational power of the film and its equivalent uh, to the old shaman telling a story by the campfire to a bunch of people. Now, 
What this is saying, and what we must understand before we proceed, is that the idea of horror didn't come along in the 1930s with Universal Monsters, uh, nor is it just a result of the 1800s and the boom of Gothic literature, but it is an ingrained theme of fear of the unknown which rests within the most primordial psyche and genetics and imagination of the human race going back to prehistoric eras beyond memory and language. The idea of horror rests at the dawn of all world mythologies and religions, and not only a very potent element of storytelling, but also uh, to cover ideas of morality and life and death and of facing our own fears. And when Wes Craven mentions the ancient shaman approaching the elements of horror as a motif of storytelling, I think that idea is factual and indisputable. Themes and elements of horror and primitive storytelling undoubtedly predates the great civilizations of Egypt and Sumeria, and their origins can be found in the survival stories of our ancient ancestors, which were passed orally for generations before being lost to time or being transformed in the first written mythologies. <clears throat> and the idea of survival was probably a key ingredient in the origin of the horror story and horror-centered folklore and these ancient tales around the tribal campfire. And now before we continue, I'd like to read a few excerpts from the classic work Supernatural Horror in Literature by the well-renowned author and master of the weird tale, Mr. H.P. Lovecraft, that further exemplifies certain aspects of what I'm trying to express here today. And I'll probably be referencing the book Supernatural Horror and Literature by Lovecraft on occasion throughout today's episode, as it's a must-read for anyone who is interested in the history of horror fiction and horror literature in general. It's basically a long-form essay uh, written by Lovecraft in regards to horror literature from the 17th century all the way up to around um, 1930, when the book was published. So, here are a few excerpts from the book Supernatural Horror in Literature, which reflect the points I'm trying to make here today at the beginning of this episode. Lovecraft eloquently states, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Man's first instincts and emotions formed his response to the environment in which he himself, which he found himself, Definite feelings based on pleasure and pain grew up around the phenomena whose causes and effects he understood, whilst around those which he did not understand and the universe teemed with them in the early days were naturally woven such personifications, marvelous interpretations and sensations of awe and fear as would be hit upon by the race, having few and simple ideas and limited experience. <clears throat> it goes on. Uh, the unknown. Being likewise the unpredictable uh, became for our primitive forefathers a terrible and omnipotent source of boons and calamities visited upon mankind for cryptic and wholly extraterrestrial reasons, and thus clearly belonging to spheres of existence whereof we know nothing and wherein we have no part. The phenomena of dreaming likewise helped to build up the notion of an unreal or spiritual world, and in general all the conditions of savage dawn life so strongly conduced toward a feeling of the supernatural that we need not wonder at the thoroughness with which man's very heredity essence has been saturated with religion and superstition. That saturation must, as a matter of plain scientific fact, be regarded as virtually permanent so far as the subconscious mind and inner instincts are concerned. For though the area of the unknown has been steadily contracting uh, for thousands of years, an infinite reservoir of mystery still engulfs most of the outer cosmos, while a vast res residuum of powerful inherited associations clings around all the objects and processes that were once mysterious, however well they may now be explained. And more than this, there is an actual uh, physiological fixation 
on the old instincts in our nervous tissue, which would make them obscurely operative even were the conscious mind to be purged of all these sources of wonder. It keeps going on to state, because we remember pain and the menace of death more vividly than pleasure, and because our feelings towards the beneficial aspects of the unknown have from the first been captured and formalized by conventional religious rituals, it has fallen to the lot of the darker and more maleficent side of cosmic mystery to figure chiefly in our popular supernatural folklore. This tendency, too, is naturally enhanced by the fact that uncertainty and danger are always closely allied, thus making any kind of an unknown world a world of peril and evil possibilities. Uh, when to this sense of fear and evil, the inevitable fascination of wonder and curiosity is superseded, there is born a composite body of keen emotion and imaginative provocation, whose vitality must of necessity endure as long as the human race itself. Children will always be afraid of the dark, and men with minds sensitive to hereditary impulse will always tremble at the thought of the hidden and fathomless worlds of strange life which may pulsate in the gulfs beyond the stars, or press hideously upon our own globe in unholy dimensions, which only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. With this foundation, no one need wonder at the existence of a literature of cosmic fear. It has always existed, and it always will, as may naturally be expected of a form so closely connected with primal emotion. The horror tale is as old as human thought and speech themselves. Once again, to repeat that, the horror tale is as old as human thought and speech themselves. Cosmic terror appears as an ingredient of the earliest folklore of all races and is crystallized in the most archaic ballads, chronicles, and sacred writings. It was, indeed, a prominent feature of the elaborate ceremonial magic with its rituals for the evocation of demons and specters, which flourished from prehistoric times. Now, we are far separated from that in today's modern society, or at least we think we are. We think we're separated from the fact that we as humans, at least individually, are pretty weak and frail and must consider our finite human mortality on a daily basis. And likewise, 10,000 plus years ago, we were much more a part of the food chain than we are today. Uh, we ultimately banded together in tribes and became the predators of the natural world, but that wasn't always the case. We were once the hunted as well as wide open to various elemental extremes, which could be quite deadly. The natural evolution of horror and storytelling became a way to deal with and to cope with the ideas of life and death and to face our fears, but also as a way to relay allegorical or symbolic ideas that we were trying to come to terms with at the formation of human culture as our more or less modern psychology and our modern psychological reactions began to form and come to the forefront of our perceptions regarding the natural world. And please keep in mind the element of gathering around the campfire and telling stories of folklore and urban legend, uh, because that idea will come into play throughout today's episode again and again, and the history of horror and the supernatural deep within the human psyche, encoded in our very DNA probably since the dawn of our evolution, and before we could be considered human, or had any of our current neurological constructs or modern mental symmetries, fear of the unknown and horror has always been a part of our mental framework and the collective psyche. Uh, horrific elements and elements of fear and elements of controlling that fear became a way to convey certain messages that might not be properly conveyed through the standard confines of storytelling, uh, especially with the limited language and articulation of our so-called early primitive people. Uh, 
just as we today say that sex and violence sells, so too has sex and violence always been a mechanism in storytelling, as well as the ideas of magic and the mysterious and what might lurk unseen around shadowy corners. Horror has always been a way to bring high stakes to any story of adventure, and sex has always been a way to uh, reward the protagonist. And we don't have to look too far to see it pop up again and again in every world mythology and religion on some level. And not only that, but every major story we recognize throughout the advent of human history, from the Epic of Gilgamesh to Homer's Odyssey and beyond, in ancient Sumer and Egypt, in India and China, Japan, Persia, and Judeo-Christianity and pretty much every known religion or mythology has elements of what could be classically considered as horror-centric, or at least horrific in their circumstances and repercussions. Horror and fear and the unknown inevitably became intimately entwined with our shared cultural identity. Now, there's no way we can cover the true history of horror and mythology and folklore, because that would take a 100 hours, and focusing on thousands of different deities and how they are all interrelated. We can talk about African mysticism and voodoo, and the Persian Djinn, and shapeshifters and snake people, and hungry ghosts and ghouls and goblins, and a thousand other entities that all reside within ancient mythology and religion, and we will talk about some of that on today's episode. Uh, because there have always been vampires and ghouls and werewolves and flesh-eaters of all variety. Uh, but we really need to look no further than what is arguably the most popular mainstream religion in the world, and that is Christianity. And that along with Catholicism and Judaism, uh, we see the elements of horror permeate the literature and artwork. We have devils and demons and possessions and human sacrifice and talking serpents and burning in a lake of fire eternally and max, mass executions uh, and graf uh, graphically depicted war atrocities and so much more. Not to mention Lilith of Eden, who is regarded as the mother of all monsters, or the Book of Revelation, which pretty much tells us we're all going to die in a massive apocalyptic event. We need look no further than the Bible to witness such events of supernatural terror and bloody carnage on a regular basis. The Old Testament God was vengeful, and the early Judaic texts uh, such as the Talmud and Kabbalah are filled with demons and demonic summonings and strange creatures and tales that might haunt are nightmares. Uh, however, Christianity uh, did not invent using elements of fear and the unknown and the supernatural as storytelling mechanisms, uh, but it arguably patented the copyright on ideas of horror. Now, I'm not saying the Bible is a horror book and that there isn't wisdom and goodness and merit uh, in the words of the Bible, and Christianity and Catholicism in particular is going to come up a lot in today's episode, and this isn't meant to, to say that I'm trying to bash anyone's religion or beliefs. Uh, but I can see the argument and a viewpoint that many could possibly make. Uh, some people might say that the Bible is one of the most prominent, influential, and epic horror novels ever written, and that the Catholic Church in general has been a huge proponent on the idea of horror over the centuries. But again, I'm not trying to focus on any particular religion here. And that reminds me of the beautiful book Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell comes to mind. As mystery and fear of the unknown and battling monsters or powerful creatures is almost always part of the hero's journey. And I'd love nothing more than to spend the entire episode just talking about hundreds of tales of horror or hundreds upon hundreds of supernatural deities that are listed throughout all world religions and myths. Uh, but there's a lot I'd like to focus on today and to cover to try to bring us into the more modern era of the past 300 years or so. But if you wish to research the lineage of monsters and demons and ghosts and ghouls and the folklore associated with that, 
then I would highly recommend a few of my favorite books on these subjects. And the first is entitled The Encyclopedia of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters by the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And Guiley has several encyclopedias on witches and ghosts and demonology and gins that are very, very useful for research purposes. Another book is called The Vampire Slayer's Field Guide to the Undead, which has hundreds of entries on historical monsters and entities from around the globe and over many hundreds of years, and all the ways in which those monsters are thought to uh, believe to be able to be killed. The Vampire's... Uh, Vampire Slayer's Field Guide to the Undead is written by Shane McDougall, which was actually a pen name for the popular horror author Jonathan Mayberry. And another book I would recommend on these subjects is Encyclopedia of the Gods by Michael Jordan. And no, it's not Michael Jordan, the basketball player, but just an author by the name of Michael Jordan. Encyclopedia of the Gods is an invaluable resource and boasts over 2,500 entries about mythological beings and deities from around the world. Uh, from African, uh, Native American tribal, belie tribal beliefs to the pantheon of Hinduism, Egyptian, Persian, Asian, Greek, Roman, Celtic, Norse, Mayan, Aztec, Judeo-Christian, and much more. They can all be further explored in the three books that I just mentioned. And the final point I'd like to make in this segment is that the symmetry of fear and the unknown and the mystical and magical goes back to before the beginning of human civilization as we know it and permeates the first 6,000 years of human culture. Uh, likewise, I'm using a, do a dozen different websites today as, as well as books and other resources for today's episode and collecting what you're about to listen to. Um, but one site in particular that kind of helped me establish a fluid uh, framework and timeline on this topic is called Tabula Rasa, that's T-A-B-U-L-A, uh, R-A-S-A dot info. Uh, so I wanted to give a mention of that site if you wish to further supplement some of the information presented on today's episode. And with that, I'd like to jump ahead several thousand years to the period of the 14th to 17th centuries AD on what would better be classified as the era of the Renaissance and the era when horror literature started to become mass-produced and big business. Now, before we can move forward into the modern elements of horror, we must first explore the heritage of these concepts. And there's perhaps nothing more representative of this than the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, pronounced Samhain, uh, which was celebrated throughout Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France, and is believed to be at least 2,000 years old. Now, the day marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter time, a time of the year that was often associated with human death. And the Celts believed that on the night before their new year, which was November 1st, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred and allowed for communication into the spirit world. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain when it was believed that the ghost of the dead returned to the earth. In addition to causing trouble and damaging crops, the, the Celts thought that the presence of the otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids, or the Celtic priest, to make prophecies about the future. For a people entirely dependent on the volatile natural world, these prophecies were an important source of comfort during the long, dark winter. Uh, to commemorate the event, the Druids built huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals as well as human sacrifice to the Celtic deities. And during the celebration, the Celts wore costumes, typically consisting of animal heads and skins, and attempted to tell each other's fortunes. When the celebration was over, they relit their hearth fires, uh, which they had extinguished earlier that evening, uh, relit them from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter months. 
And we all know what Halloween is. I didn't really have to explain, uh, because to many of us, such as myself, it's our favorite holiday. But it seemed necessary to relay the ancient Celtic traditions in order to better highlight the continuing evolution of horror and the unknown in our human culture into more modern times and celebrations and the popularization of horror in society. Uh, but such traditions are not limited to the Eurocentric belief systems, as they can also be found throughout the provinces of Asia and beyond. We can't properly explore the ideas of horror and the supernatural with at least touching upon the ancient deities of Chinese and Japanese folklore, of which the demons, spirits, and creatures and ghouls influence Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, and other folklore of the region. There are estimated to be at least 1,500 monstrous deities and ghosts and ghouls just in Chinese tradition alone. And throughout time, Kaiden, K-A-I-D-A-N, has come to refer to early ghost stories in Japanese literature, dating back to at least the Heian period, which was between 794 to 1185 A.D. And the tales of the Kaiden, which is translated as meaning a strange story, became popular in Japan during this period after the invention of printing technologies, uh, allowing the further spread of written stories. And Japanese horror tends to focus on elements of psychological suspense and tension building, as well as elements of supernatural, particularly involving ghosts and poltergeists and possessions. Other ancient Japanese horror fiction contains themes of possession and exorcism, shamanism, and precognition of terrible events which were set to transpire. And often these were tales of revenge and ghastly appearances by all manner of terrible creatures and entities. And we can often see the idea of vengeful spirits and demons and stories of death and others in popular Japanese traditions of the kabuki theater. And while it wasn't really until the 1990s and early 2000s that Japanese horror would begin to majorly influence Western culture and cinema, the roots of Japanese and Chinese horror span back at least 2,000 years with a rich history of folklore and mythology. Now please bear with me as we attempt to cover uh, nearly 2,000 years over the next 45 minutes or so. I'm going to be leaving out a lot of key elements, and hopefully this provides a framework regarding the topics of supernatural horror and the lineage and roots of modern horror. Now let's move from China and Japan into Europe, where from the 5th to 15th centuries AD, we have what is deemed to be the medieval period, or the Middle Ages. And this period was incredibly harsh and rather barbaric, with public executions and people living in squalor being the norm for our society. And then in this period, for about 500 years, the biggest proponent of horror in the supernatural would be seen in the art world, primarily in the vistas of Christian martyrdom and beheadings and sacrifice, uh, but also in the narrative of the biblical apocalypse and end-of-the-world scenarios with burning lakes of fire and being eternally tormented by demons. And while we really didn't have anything major in regards to literature uh, for the majority of this period, other than religious literature, what we did have was an inundation of horror, uh, Judeo-Christian and Catholic artwork depicting all variety of torment, martyrdom, and apocalyptic fire. And now, dragons also played prominently in the artwork during this period as both a symbolic Christian allegory of evil and wickedness, such as the serpent in the Garden of Eden, but also of a more cryptozoological uh, nature, as dragons of terrible ferocity were believed during this period to have one time actually existed in reality and not just in the imagination. Today, our idea of the dragon uh, represents uh, is not quite so terrible. It's even become kid-friendly in some cases, such as cartoonish icons like Puff the Magic Dragon. 
But in medieval Europe, uh, the notion of uh, dragons was something very sinister and deadly and associated with the devil and wickedness, or even as a challenge to be faced and conquered by the protagonist or the hero. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to ruffle any tail feathers today on your religious beliefs because we're just trying to have fun here and talk about the history of horror. Uh, We can arguably say that the roots of today's horror genre can be found first in the notorious and infamous Spanish Inquisitions of the Catholic Church. In 1235 AD, the Vatican issued an order to reestablish the orthodoxy of the faith, when almost immediately charges of heresy were inextricably tangled with allegations of witchcraft and deals with the devil. And to be noted here, the word heretic comes from the Greek heresies, which means choice. So in the case of the Inquisitions, heretics were those who were using their freedom of choice to choose their own spiritual beliefs. And remember, this too comes uh, from several hundred years of Christian crusades, which were basically meant to purge or assimilate all pagan ideas and beliefs. And this was deemed a threat uh, to the Catholic Church. And a sad thing to remember and to keep in mind with the Inquisitions is that it wasn't just the authority of the church that was pushing for these extreme measures. It was the religious zealots of the general public and those that bowed down to the church that also demanded that so-called witches and heretics and non-believers be rooted out of society and punished. Public executions and torturous interrogations became entertainment and sport for many of the so-called good Catholics of the day. So there was a sick symbiotic uh, relationship, not just of the church, but also of the most devout of its followers that were demanding that all non-believers or believers of other faiths be purged from society. The Inquisitions almost directly carried over from the Christian Crusades, which was meant to stamp stamp out pagans and other faiths and otherwise uh, free-thinking human beings. And its resulting obsession with witchcraft... Uh, would end up executing thousands and thousands of people and torturing thousands more and would endure until the 17th century and even beyond to modern times, such as the so-called satanic panic uh, of the 1980s. But we can almost definitively say that the origins of our more modern concepts of horror and the supernatural arrive during this period and into the mid-14th century with the arrival of the bubonic plague, otherwise known as the Black Death. And the Black Death decimated Europe from about 1346 to 1353 A.D., with estimates that it killed roughly anywhere from 25 million to 100 million people, at a time when there would only have been about 400 million people uh, making up the entire population of the planet. Now, can you imagine how utterly terrible it would have been to be alive during this period? Not only would you have uh, regular public executions of supposed witches and those who are speaking out against the Catholic Church being burned at the stake— But you have the Black Death, which is killing about one-third of the population with dead bodies being left to rot in the streets. Now, it's kind of easy to make fun of this some 600 years later with skits like Monty Python and the Holy Grail calling for people to bring out your dead. To have been alive during this period would have been utterly terrifying and made true horror a part of everyone's daily life and routine. I think there's a distinct possibility that the one-two punch of the Inquisitions and the bubonic plague has somewhat scarred the psyche of human civilization even after all these centuries. And in the middle of this madness, it was in 1307 that Dante published the first volume of his divine comedy, Inferno, and this vision of an ordered and layered hell made up different levels and the depiction of Satan that Dante presented 
would prove heavily influential to the ideas of horror, and in particular Christian-oriented horror, which was rampant during the Middle Ages. Though today, this vision of the devil has arguably been eclipsed by the one which was later presented by John Milton in Paradise Lost in 1667. But surely, in the midst of the Spanish Inquisition, the death toll of the Black Death and Dante's Divine Comedy uh, seem to sum up the atmosphere of this time period. And it's during this period that we move from the medieval age or the late Middle Ages into what has come to be known as the Gothic period, which dominated artwork, architecture, and literature and lasted from about the 12th century AD to the 16th century. Now, Gothic comes from the Goth people and represented heavily Germanic ideals and customs and themes, as well as Germanic folklore and legends. And we'll notice uh, throughout today's episode that the history of horror is uh, highly related to those crazy Germans, as they played a huge part in the evolution of the sinister and macabre in storytelling. And for the next century, works of horror would still be largely tied to religion, as it was in 1486 that Inquisitors Henry Kramer and Jacob Springer published Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of the Witches. Uh, This book, which codified a belief in witchcraft, was reprinted 14 times through Europe by 1520. And it certainly contributed to the witch craze that gripped the next two centuries. And it should be noted that the Spanish Inquisitions were not officially over and disbanded until the year 1834. The Inquisition lasted from roughly 1235 A.D. to 1834 A.D., and persecuted heretics and supposed witches for 600 years. Now, folks, 1834 was not that long ago, and let's not even get started on the horrors that the Catholic Church has perpetrated in the past 100 years. It's just kind of mind-blowing to realize that the Inquisitions were not officially disbanded until 1834, which just goes to show the power that the Catholic Church held, and the power that it desperately wanted to keep a hold of throughout the past thousand years of human history. Now, it was in 1485 that we first began to see the elaborate artwork and woodcuts and morbidly beautiful frescoes of the Dance Macabre, also called the Dance of Death, which is an artistic genre of allegory of the late Middle Ages on the universality of death. Uh, No matter what one's station in life is, the Dance Macabre ultimately unites us all in a sort of sacred bond. And a collected work published in Paris by Guyot Marchant, Uh, contains verses and illustrations which are taken from the now-lost murals adorning the Cemetery of the Innocents in Paris, dating from 1424 to 1425. And the Dance Macabre consists of uh, the dead, or a skeletal personification of death, summoning representatives from all walks of life to dance along to the grave, typically with a pope, an emperor, a king, a child, and a laborer. It was produced as Memento Mori, which... Uh, means remember thou too shall die to remind people of the fragility of their lives and how vain were their glories of earthly life. But this idea of the personification of death and how we are all united by death and the dancing skeletons and skeletal figures of the dance macabre was a very popular form of art. And we can still see images that were created during this era being used as album covers and book covers and promotional art even to this day. And while the Christian artwork, and particularly apocalyptic Christian artwork, had dominated the landscape of uh, the previous hundred years, several hundred years, we might say that it was around 1500 A.D. with the famous and highly influential artist, uh, surrealist works of Dutch artist Hieronymus Botch, 
uh, most famous for his painting The Garden of Earthly Delights, uh, where the medium uh, reached a pinnacle and peak of its power with nightmarish vistas and haunting landscapes, which still stir the emotions and imaginations of all who view these works, uh, and likely inspired artists from Salvador Dali to Francis Bacon and beyond. And Botch, with works like his Garden of Earthly Delights, was a highly sought-after artist of many of the upper-class citizens who could afford his works, though he still drew the attention of the Inquisitions. I wish to emphasize again that the literacy rate was very low during the Middle Ages and into the Gothic period, and printing was not easily affordable or very widespread. And thus it was with oral stories and artwork, both of which were heavily based on religious idealism and apocalyptic prophecy, that horror and the supernatural maintained its hold over the human imagination. By the 1580s, a new kind of horror had come to the London stage as a series of gruesome plays began with Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy in 1585 which also included Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, 1594, Hamlet in 1600, and Macbeth in 1605. And we must uh, particularly take a moment to focus here on Shakespeare, whose works have stood the test of time and which routinely featured spirits and ghosts and apparitions and prophecy and all manner of what might be otherwise uh, considered and referred to as elements of the uncanny, mysterious, and the weird. Shakespeare had around 37 plays, uh, from comedy to farce to drama to political and more, but we can't ignore the definitive elements of terror and the supernatural, which run through many of his works and provide a certain evolution to the genre of horror that would ultimately become the modern-day history of horror. Now let's skip forward a little bit to 1714, when Thomas Parnell published A Night Piece of Death, and this was considered the first work of the so-called Graveyard Poets. These were sometimes referred to as churchyard poets, and the group was made up of pre-romantic poets known for their preoccupation with mortality and death, and their fascination with skulls and worms and otherwise subjects of gloom and doom and melancholy. And among these, are, uh, among these poets were Oliver Goldsmith and William Cowper and James McPherson and Robert Blair and Thomas Chatterton uh, were among the so-called graveyard poets. And though most critics dismissed their work, uh, some even calling this so-called graveyard poetry a disease of the mind, their efforts did contribute to the evolution of what would become the Gothic novel, filled with the atmosphere of dread. The Gothic uh, Germanic often uses scenery of decay and death and morbidity to achieve its effects, especially in the Italian horror school of Gothic. However, Gothic literature was not the origin of this tradition, and it, it, it was a far older tradition. Uh, the corpses and skeletons in churchyards so commonly associated, associated with the early Gothic uh, novels were popularized first by these graveyard poets that started around 1714. Now up next we have a truly bizarre account where fiction uh, blended over into reality uh, when in 1731 the Austrian government ordered an investigation into mass hysteria that gripped the village of Medvedja after local citizen Arnold Paoli had died in 1726 after having fallen off a hay wagon. Now, prior to his death, Paoli had intimated that he'd been bitten by a vampire when he lived near Gasawa in Turkish Serbia. And to reverse the curse, Paoli said he'd smeared himself with mud from the vampire's grave and with the vampire's blood. And about a month after Paoli's death, villagers said that the deceased man had risen from his grave and killed four people. Now, believing Paoli to be a vampire, they disinterred his body 40 days after his death. 
And noticing that it was relatively undecayed, this further lent, uh, lent what they believed to be credibility to their theory that Paoli was actually a vampire. And they drove a stake through the heart of his corpse and burned it. His four supposed victims' bodies were treated the same way, and despite these precautions, ten more people died of mysterious circumstances in 1731, and the village still blamed Paoli, even though they had burned his body and stuck a stake through its heart. Uh, Jonas Fleckinger made the report uh, corroborating the villagers' claims, and the story quickly gained attention throughout Europe. The tale made its way into both international journals and the imaginations of the fashionable set, even scientists and philosophers were fascinated. And it wasn't just the uneducated who were caught up in this story and the mania of vampirism, uh, but the well-educated as well came to believe that vampires were real and that it was from this unlikely source which sprung our modern obsession with vampires. Now, that's not to say that this was the first time that vampires or cases of vampirism had sprouted up in history, as it was the ancient Sumerians at around 4,500 B.C., who believed that the spirits inhabited all created forms and that the Edimu, sometimes known as the Akimu, were ghostly spirits that sucked the life force out of people's bodies. And the Edimu was the departed soul of a dead person that had been cursed or denied eternal rest because of some unredeemed sin. It had a psychic control over its victims, and the Edimu could walk through doors and walls. Uh, this being would drain the life force from households, including the blood from the owner of the home and his relatives and servants. And by many accounts, it is in these ancient Edimu that the origin of the vampire emerges, and that was around 4,500 B.C. So while the idea of vampirism is very old and, run throughout, and runs throughout most world uh, mythologies and religions and folktales in some capacity, it was in 1731 with the strange and bizarre case of Arnold Paoli that the scientific and medical community became involved and stated vampires to be factual entities, thus capturing the imagination of the world. And in keeping with a certain sequential order of events here, it was author Horace Walpole who, in 1764, published The Castle of Otranto, which is considered by many to be the first supernatural English novel, and some would even call it the first true horror novel and one of the most influential works of gothic fiction. It blends elements of realistic fiction with the supernatural and fantastical, establishing many of the plot devices and character types that would become typical of the gothic novel, such as secret passages, clanging trapdoors, pictures beginning to move, and doors closing by themselves. Now, the castle of Otranto would have an incredible impact on the emerging genre of horror, and the so-called gothic novel flourished from the late 1700s to the early 1800s, and now we are emerging from the idea of the Age of Enlightenment into what has generally been noted as the Age of Romanticism and Romantic Poetry, which was heavily influenced by the Graveyard Poets, and which was at its height from 1800 to 1850. And it was around this time period, the mid uh, to late 1700s, that literature was swarming. Never before there had been such a spread of literacy in English-speaking society. Books and magazines had now become economically viable for mass production as a whole gamut of influences were creating reading for leisure. Uh, larger and larger groups of society were reading short stories and novels for pleasure now. And foremost among these uh, disreputable developments were tales of the macabre. And their sources were manifold. Uh, collections of folk tales and medieval romances, translations of Eastern legends such as the Arabian Nights, and many other tales which may have been around for decades or even centuries, but were just now being uh, viably spread to English-speaking peoples due to greater ease and affordability in the manufacturing of print and paper and books and pamphlets.
Turn the record over for part 2. Flip the record for the B-side. Turn the record over for part 2. Flip the record for the B-side.